We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. We think there's going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence, so much proof. I ask everyone to stay calm. The process is working. It's going to end up perhaps at the highest court in the land. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted. Legal challenges remain, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Coming up over the next hour, we examine the vote, the legal battle, and the path ahead for White House policy. Plus how the next steps could play out in the days and weeks to come leading up to December's Electoral College vote. That is all straight ahead. For now, let's bring in Derek Wallbank, Bloomberg's senior editor for Breaking News. And uh, Derek, of course, the uh, Biden team was hoping the news would break last night that they'd get to that magic number of 270. What are the chances we see that news actually break this weekend? Well, Nathan, I think that the chances of getting a real sign of of where this is actually going this weekend are actually fairly good. Um, you are looking now overnight as you wake up in America. The thing to know is that everything kind of kept pushing the same direction that it was going. In Pennsylvania, you saw the Biden lead expand again a little bit. It expanded again in Georgia a little bit. In Arizona, uh, narrowed a little bit, but not by enough that Donald Trump needs to go and take over that state. So you still see, as, as America wakes up today, Joe Biden sort of standing on the precipice of victory with any one of a couple of states possibly putting him over. Now, Derek, the Trump campaign has already said it would pursue all legal paths in a vote fight. So catch us up, if you could, about how many more paths the president might have. Well, in terms of the legal challenges, you are seeing a lot of things start to be filed or threatened or or somehow previewed. Um, and, and it kind of is it's, it's every single state. There's something going on to various levels of severity. I think the biggest one probably and where where a lot of the focus is is in Pennsylvania where um the Supreme Court has gotten a little bit involved to say that some of these uh late arriving ballots uh need to be kind of put to the side. And that was a fight that we knew was coming. We we knew would be there. But Amy, one of the things that I noticed here is it might be a fight that's actually numerically irrelevant. And what I mean by that is it's very, very possible that when Pennsylvania stops counting all of the votes that everyone agrees are regularly cast, um, that the Biden margin is so large there that the total votes in question in this, in this dispute um, will, be, will be less than the Biden margin, and in which case it wouldn't change the outcome. So that's one I think we're following, though, in Pennsylvania. We're definitely following that. Um, I think that both sides are kind of agreed on the idea that every vote should count. But Republicans are trying to make a a distinction to say every legal vote should count. And then they're making some different definitions of the word legal. But in practice, I think I would sum up by saying that Biden right now is on track for a victory that would be large enough to offset any of these potential challenges that we have seen seriously filed, assuming numbers continue trending where they are. 
It does seem, Derek, as though uh, Pennsylvania could very well be the decisive state as we uh, do the math up to 270. But we also know that there is probably going to be a recount in Wisconsin. The margin is uh, slim enough there that it uh, could trigger a recount should the Trump campaign ask for one. And Georgia's secretary of state has already said that uh, the margin is so tight there at current count, only about 4,000 votes, there's definitely going to be a recount. How could that sway things? Well, yeah, Nathan, and, and in Georgia, the overnight numbers are are ticked uh, up enough that when the AP updates its totals, you'll see that rise to about 7,000 for Biden, but still well within that recount territory. Um, I do think that that is a thing that's definitely in play. If there's a recount, you're unlikely to see the AP call one of those states because they tend not to do that. Uh, in Pennsylvania, this is the one This is the one that I think we're all watching very, very closely. There, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of math that I did during my day uh, okay. <laughs> here overnight, <laughs> which, is, which is to say that under Pennsylvania rules, um, if, if the margin is within 0.5 of a percent, then you can get to a recount. If it's above that, you don't necessarily have to have that. So what does that mean in raw votes? Somewhere in the ballpark of 40,000 votes as a margin between Biden and Trump. And right now it's in the upper 20,000s. So it's a reachable thing for Biden to be able to get to a recount-proof uh, majority in the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And if that happens, that helps there. The other things that we're watching really, really early – uh, I think in the day are that Nevada and Arizona should have some additional numbers for us. And those if those put the counts in both of those states to bed, then Pennsylvania is academic. Derek Walbank, we have uh, quite a lot to watch uh, in the uh, hours and potentially days to come in these battleground states. It's just amazing to think that so many uh, battlegrounds remain in flux this far after Election Day. But we knew with the pandemic on, it very well could have been like this. Derek Walbank, Bloomberg Senior Editor for Breaking News. Thanks so much for being with us this morning on this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris. And this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It is 717 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted. Legal challenges remain, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Let's bring in Kevin Cirilli now. Kevin is the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television. Kevin, good morning to you. Let's get caught up on what we may have missed overnight. Uh, Joe Biden yes. remains ahead in four key states. Ballots still being counted as we speak. President Trump continues to push the idea of stopping the count, that there are some conspiracy theories surrounding this election. Where are we right now? Good morning, Amy. Last night, Joe Biden, speaking from Wilmington, Delaware, delivering what largely what he was his team was hoping would be an acceptance speech or a declaratory speech of sorts. It turned into another speech urging patience and calm. But he went on to say that he is going to make sure that every vote is counted. He also said that he believes he will win in the battleground states of Georgia as well as Arizona. And if he were to do that, Amy, he would be the first 
first Democratic candidate to do so since Bill Clinton. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign, they're saying that they are willing to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if they if they want to. But behind the scenes yesterday, when I spoke with Republican members of Congress, they were the president was met with a deep source of skepticism about what the strategy is and how long the president was willing to continue onward with this approach. Well, in the meantime, as the president pursues this approach, Kevin, we do have this very slow, protracted counting of mail-in votes that many of these states uh, hadn't been equipped to deal with up until now. Give us a sense of where we are in terms of where the count is in some of these battleground states, particularly uh, Georgia, where the where the margin is so razor thin right now. Precisely. So Georgia, it's a it's it's incredibly a razor thin margin, and it's it's something like less than a percentage point according to some counts. But they're headed for a recount, and recounts typically take at least several days, and that is a very optimistic estimate. Uh, it can take several weeks, and so we could be in mid-November by the time Georgia gets gets a result. Uh, in terms of uh, Nevada. Uh, that we're anticipating new uh, vote counts from Clark County. Uh, of course, that's where Las Vegas is. We're anticipating new vote counts sometime, Nathan, within the next couple of hours and throughout the weekend. And then in Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden yesterday surpassed uh, President Trump in the vote total, uh, they're waiting for military absentee ballots and they're continuing to count as well. To be frank with you, the Biden campaign had wanted there to be one more state called before he spoke in Wilmington, Delaware last night. He was going to speak at like seven o'clock at night. And then I checked in with the source on the campaign. And what they told me was, well, they're still, you know, they're waiting and optimistic that when he spoke, he would get to that magic number or at least one of the networks or AP would have put him at 270. But that just didn't happen. And it, you know, and now it, it it's becoming a situation where you very much could have someone declaring at 270 uh, pre or Joe Biden saying, you know, thank you. I'm, I, <laughs> I we're looking forward to being president and and President Trump not conceding. Let's talk about the mood, uh, Kevin. You've talked yeah. to operatives on both sides of the aisle, Trump supporters and Biden supporters. Have you been able to gauge the mood, the sense of optimism or the sense of determination? What's the temperature now? As I mentioned yesterday, I spoke with several Republican members of Congress and, and they actually had uh, a a. a a call with the Republican conference yesterday uh, in in what well, would have been on Capitol Hill, but this obviously because of COVID on, on via telephone. And there's a sense, Amy, of well, we we made gains in the House of Representatives and we're still competitive in the Senate when everyone was predicting a blue wave. But at terms of the presidential level, I would say that while publicly you're hearing potential 2024 candidates like Senator Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, and others deliver statements saying every legal vote must be counted, what you're not seeing is a rush to a campaign war room or a legal war room, and that's where there's a lot of division. Uh, the president's inner circle, his members of his family, they are in contact very much, and in some cases on the ground in these battleground states. The president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, uh, still very much uh, briefing the president, talking to the president uh, about uh, what's going on. Uh, but the, again, they it it they don't appear to necessarily have 
the entire Republican Party full-heartedly behind them. Um, and that's a that's a marked difference from other fights that the president has been in, including impeachment and Mueller and, and all that. And in terms of the legal strategy that the president's team is pursuing, Kevin, during the campaign, uh, we'd been talking about how there had been such a cash drain on the uh, Trump side. Is there enough resources for the president's side to mount the kind of multi-pronged legal fight that they're hinting at that they want? Well, they they have said that there is and that uh, that their attorneys are, are willing to file you know, a state by state claims. And, and they ultimately do feel that if it should it end up in the Supreme Court, that it would be in their favor, I, I, you know, but it's it's difficult to talk about the multi-state uh, legal approach, Nathan, as you and I have talked about before, because we don't have any source material in front of us. And we and we there have not been briefings in the sense it typically with with this type of situation, you would anticipate round-the-clock briefings and updates coming from the presidential election campaign, and that just hasn't really started yet, uh, but it's unknown if they're working on that. Now, we got reports yesterday, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times reporting that David Bossey had been hired uh, to be a lead figure on the, the legal fights by the president's re-election campaign. He had fallen out of favor at one time with the president. Uh, now, apparently, he's back in uh, based upon those developments, but that's what's going on on that side. On Joe Biden's side, they are continuing to have meetings about COVID-19 updates. I can tell you I've spoken directly with uh, sources who are connected to his transition team. They're having transition uh, meetings. Uh, yesterday, uh, Dow Jones reported that Gary Gensler is going to be uh, in a Biden administration, the Wall Street uh, oversight advisor. Uh, so they're, they're continuing onward in terms of a transition, but it's interesting because they also have to be careful because he still hasn't reached 270. And we got a lot more to come as we uh, continue to dive into the uh, legal challenges and just the simple vote count itself, as uh, this election certainly has gone into uh, much more than overtime now. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television, uh, thanks for being with us this morning. We're going to be checking back with you uh, throughout this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak on the election process. Coming up, we'll have more on the vote, the legal battle, and the path ahead for White House policy straight ahead on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager, alongside Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Coming up, we'll look at the future of policy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Let's bring in Greg Valliate now. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, good morning to you. Always a pleasure to have you. Want to pick your brain a little bit this morning uh, about Joe Biden. We know he has a slight lead now, and if he does hold on to that, and if the count for Congress does remain the same, we could have a Democrat in the White House, a democratically held House, and a Republican Senate. I want to ask you about that scenario. Do you see gridlock, a divided government, uh, potential for cooperation? What do you see? Well, good morning, Amy. I'd say primarily gridlock. I think that if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, and we can't be positive because of runoffs on January 5th in Georgia, but if the Republicans control the Senate, I don't see a lot getting done, and I certainly don't see big tax increases. 
Although, Greg, uh, we heard from Biden last night, of course, uh, saying, you know, expressing a message of patience while at the same time trying to look ahead, saying that he has a lot of work to do on the pandemic, on the economy, uh, racial justice and climate change. He's obviously laying out an agenda there. Is it possible for him to pursue something of that agenda? Does he have a mandate to do so? He might, uh, Nathan, but at the same time, I think a lot of the proposals that he's talking about uh, would run into stiff opposition from McConnell and uh, McConnell's Republican troops. So maybe a few things. Uh, the, the real tip-off will be how quickly we get confirmation of uh, Biden's cabinet secretaries. That could, that could be a rocky process. Now, this count, Greg, is taking a very long time. And I want to get your thoughts on what that means for the nation. What I mean is, on the one hand, it seems like it would be a good thing that it's taking a long time. It means a lot of people voted. They participated. The elections officials are being exceedingly careful. But on the other hand, everybody's in limbo. The whole country is just holding its breath. Is this good or bad? It's bad. I think talk about how uh, this could be fraudulent, uh, that the, the election was rigged. Some of the rhetoric from the president and his aides, I think, are not helpful. Uh, I do worry a little about social unrest. If this uh, persists for weeks uh, without any final resolution by the courts, I think that you could see a lot of protests. Joe Biden has tried to pitch himself as the kind of president who can cool the temperature of the country and try to reach out uh, to those voters who supported President Trump. What kind of challenge could he face if he does uh, get those 270 key electoral votes and make it into the White House? What kind of challenge does he face to try to bind the nation's wounds? Well, primarily, I would say, from the Senate. Again, uh, the, the most intriguing angle here, I think, Nathan, is the relationship between Biden and McConnell. They've known each other for decades. They've worked together pretty well. Both are known as really expert deal-makers. So to be a little optimistic this morning, I do see a glimmer of hope that the two of them could get together and it would have to be close to the center, not on the far left or far right. But I think the two of them could get things done. So that speaks to cooperation between the White House and the Senate. But what does the next president, whether it's Trump or Biden, face immediately on day one? What is the very first job for that president? COVID, COVID, COVID. I, I think that is by far the number one issue. I think that, first of all, Biden will bring back Dr. Fauci from, you know, he's been in, in Siberia. I think <laughs> Fauci, Fauci becomes a be a big, big player once once again. There'll have to be a debate internally whether you shut things down. I don't think that Biden would. I think there'll be much tougher guidelines on masks and social distancing. But I, I think it's more than anything else, it's COVID. And just quickly, Greg, I mean, that raises the question of stimulus as well, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Big issue for the markets. There will be a stimulus bill, fearless forecast. I can't tell you when. I can't tell you how much it'll cost. But I do think in the next couple of months, we have to have another stimulus bill. All right, Greg, I want to build on something that you said earlier about civil unrest. It does seem like what the electorate wants to know is not just who wins, but then what happens when one candidate is declared the winner? Because businesses are still boarded up. Folks are not letting their guard down. What could possibly happen over the next few weeks? Well, there could be protests. There already are protests in New York, Portland, many cities. And if the rhetoric uh, over a, a rigged election gets more harsh, if a final winner has not been determined, I think protests could uh, 
been out of control. Does it make a difference that there could possibly be a split within the Republican Party over whether to fight this uh, vote count and how far to take the fight? The the key is uh, the centrist uh, Republicans. Will they start to speak out more forcefully? We saw in the Wall Street Journal this weekend an editorial saying that perhaps Donald Trump has to gracefully uh, concede. But if the president does not gracefully succeed, that's going to raise the temperature all around the country. Greg Vallier, uh, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist for AGF Investments. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning, Greg, on this election special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. And coming up, We'll get more on the legal battle for the White House, how the uh, pending and current lawsuits could play out potentially on their way to the high court. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The path to the White House is there for Joe Biden, but a protracted legal battle could be in the offing. Bloomberg Law host June Grasso is with us now, our resident legal expert. We take a look at the flurry of legal activity that has accompanied this election count. June, good Saturday morning. Uh, What are the cases? Good morning. What are some of the cases that you're watching right now? Obviously, we've had uh, quite a lot of them. What's got your focus this morning? Well, the main case that we're watching is the case in Pennsylvania. First, because Pennsylvania is such, you know, a swing state and so important in this election, but also because that's the case. And by the way, when I say Pennsylvania, there are several cases in Pennsylvania, but there is one in particular, several cases, one that's already been dismissed. But the case that I'm talking about is the one that probably everyone has heard, and that is about the ballots that come in late. And this has already gone to the Supreme Court once. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said it's okay to count ballots that come in that three days after Election Day, as long as they're postmarked by Election Day. That went up to the Supreme Court in a four to four decision. The justices said, we'll leave that in place for now, because the four of the cons- uh, for the conservative justices said, you know, we're open to leaving to discussing this later, maybe after the election, because you have those ballots segregated. So that makes it easier even. So that's why people are so focused on Pennsylvania, because the Supreme Court has left the door open to considering that again. And then there was also a, an order by Justice Alito Yesterday, this is sort of kind of odd because the Republicans went to the Supreme Court again and said they're not keeping those ballots segregated. And Justice Alito was the justice for that um, that handles uh, any special requests from that area. And he said, "Okay." He ordered them to keep it segregated to the state officials, which the state officials say, well, we're already already doing that. So it's sort of. It's unclear why the Pennsylvania Republicans went up to the Supreme Court again. You I know, know it's confusing. <laughs> it's a little yeah. conf- confusing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about, June, because my original question to you was going to be about the trip to the Supreme Court and uh, how the Supreme Court may receive a case like this. But from where you're, from what you're telling me, it sounds like 
it may not be just one trip to the Supreme Court. We may see this go over and over to the Supreme Court because our system of election is decentralized all the way down to the district level. So if the Trump campaign has cases it wants to bring from district, you know, just hypothetically 139 out of uh, Nevada and district 178 out of Pennsylvania, you know, these different districts, we could see trips over and over and over again to the Supreme Court, could we not? Well, theoretically you could, but remember something else, you don't just go automatically to the Supreme Court. You just can't, you know, even President Trump can't say, they did the, they, they're not counting correctly in Michigan justices, take my case. Mm-hmm. You have to go through the steps. You have to go to the lower court, and then the lower court has to usually send it to the higher court. So it's, it's a process, and also not every kind of case would go to the Supreme Court. Then the Supreme Court has to decide, are we going to take this case or not? It takes four justices to decide whether or not to take the case. So it's a process, and it's not quite as easy as President Trump makes it sound when he says, I think the highest court is going to decide this. There's a lot of steps in between, and also the question has to be a question that the Supreme Court will deal with. Remember, Bush v. Gore, that was the one case in our history where the Supreme Court decided the outcome of an election, and that was such an odd you know, combination of circumstances where you had 537 votes in the state that mattered in the election, the pivotal state. So that's a very unusual circumstance, and I hope, I heard an election law expert in in one of the panels I was listening to said, I just hope for the sake of the American people that it doesn't come down to Philadelphia, to Pennsylvania, (laughs) because the laws there are, the Republicans' legislature didn't really take care of the pre-election laws the way they should have. They didn't pass enough laws to make it easier. And, of course, the big difference this time around, June, is that uh, we have the potentiality of having a number of states uh, that could be decisive uh, as, the, as the vote counting continues. And when you mentioned the steps that have to be gone through, as you've been watching uh, this legal process play out, we know you've already seen that uh, the Trump side has been stymied in a number of the steps that it's already tried to take. The uh, lower courts have uh, thrown out a number of uh, the Trump side's complaints on the merits. What is the Trump strategy right now? Is there a consistent legal strategy that is being pursued at the moment, as far as you can say? Not that I can see, and not that any of the election law experts I've spoken to, the many election law experts I've spoken to over the last month uh, can see. What happens is, they're, what they seem to be doing is just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So you have a lot of these suits are about election law observers. So you have Trump campaign observers that want to see what's going on as they're counting the votes. Well, they're allowed to be there, but they're complaining about the access that they have. For example, President Trump the other day said, we won a great victory in Pennsylvania. That victory was that they got to get to within six feet of where the the counters were, the people counting the ballots were, as opposed to they were about 10 or 20 feet before. And remember something else, this is all being live streamed. So the public can actually see what's going on in these, most of these 
places where they're counting ballots. So that was the big victory that he referred to. Those are the, there's all, there was also, and you talked about cases being thrown out. The case in Michigan was thrown out for that reason. And um, these cases don't come back. You can't come back later and say, my people didn't get close enough, so let's discount all the ballots. That, so that's sort of a dead issue now. Mm -hmm. And in Georgia, one of the issues they raised was someone claimed, one of the election observers claimed, that he saw a worker put ballots that came in late with ballots that were on time. That was, there was no evidence of that when they took it to the court. So there has to be evidence to support these claims. And so far, in none of these cases, has there been that evidence. Legally, can the loser in a presidential election continue the court fight even after January 20th, even after the inauguration? Can they? <laughs> Amy, that's a good question. No, I think they probably, after January 20th, he's not the president anymore. And um, any, so any kind of lawsuit he'd have to bring would most likely be dismissed by the court because you'd have to say, well, what's the, what do you have at stake here? What's your standing in this case? You have to have a, you have, there has to be a case or controversy for the mm -hmm court to consider it. So what's the case or controversy at that point? I mean, I can't, you can file the lawsuit, but I believe that it would be dismissed outright. And at what point do you stop? That's, you know, that's a great question because, you know, President Trump and um, a, an election expert I, I spoke to, Justin Levitt, said that President Trump, if a doctor hit him on the knee with a rubber mallet, would sue. And yeah. that's been his history. I mean, that's he's he's sued so many times in the past, and a lot of those suits have gone nowhere. So would he sue? Possibly he would. But at some point, you know, it's time to, to stop the lawsuits and and move on. We have about a minute left here, June. Of course, the president has been questioning the validity of mail-in ballots, at least rhetorically. In terms of that being a legal strategy, what kind of threshold would the president have to meet to question the validity of a mail-in ballot in court? Well, the whole issue here is that they have to show evidence that there was some kind of fraud involved with the mail-in ballots. And I do have to say that there is a mail-in ballots are a little more difficult than regular ballots. So there is a slightly higher percentage of them that may get tossed or discounted uh, because people forgot to you know, put it in the right envelope or sign it. There are a lot of different steps and a lot of people are not used to it. So there is that. But the, the point is that he would have to have a state where the number of mail-in ballots, it, it's called the margin of litigation. So the number of the mail-in ballots has to be enough for him to have victory in that state. So that's a lot of mail-in ballots. And if you look at these cases that are, that are pending, they're, they're talking about 1,000 ballots here, 1,000 ballots there. Right. Even in Arizona, it's 10,000 ballots, so not a lot. Not a lot of margin. June Grosso, host of Bloomberg Law, our resident legal expert. Thanks for being with us this morning. Stay tuned for another hour of complete coverage on the 2020 election and the future of White House policy. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.
We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. We think there's going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence, so much proof. I ask everyone to stay calm. The process is working. It's going to end up perhaps at the highest court in the land. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted. Legal challenges remain, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Now, coming up over the next hour, we'll examine the vote and the legal battle, plus the path ahead for White House policy. Plus, how the next steps could play out in the days and weeks leading up to December's Electoral College vote. That's all straight ahead. We bring in Wendy Schiller, chair of the political science department at Brown University. Uh, good to have you with us this morning on this special program, Professor. And I want to take a look at how this election process, this protracted count, is really affecting uh, the political tenor in this country. How much soul searching needs to be done by either of the parties uh, now that this is all going on? Well, um, good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, I think that what's interesting about the slow process is that it's very frustrating, I think, now to people who voted for Joe Biden, who support Joe Biden, who want this to be declared and to move on. But in some ways, it's actually, you know, it's giving people time to sort of get used to this idea, and particularly people who, who supported Trump. Now, we've seen examples of people who support Trump who are going down to the polling places and, in you know, very few cases seem to be sort of more agitated than not, but mostly peaceful. But, you know, this, the longer this takes, the more methodical it is, the more explanation of what's going on, you know, the harder it is to challenge the ultimate result as being fraudulent. And you're seeing that now from Republican leaders who are kind of walking this tight line. You're also seeing it from some conservative media sources that are, you know, striding in there sort of in prime time, but starting to say, kind of looks like Joe Biden's going to be president. We've got to get used to the idea. So in, in some ways, the slowness of the process, Nathan, may be one of the, the blessings, actually, of such a huge turnout and, and absentee ballot and mail-in ballot, because it's giving people sort of time to explain and time to get used to the idea. Now, Professor Schiller, we know the country is politically divided. You can see that in these razor-thin margins in this vote. But I'd like to get your take on where we are politically in this country, where counting votes in a presidential election seems to have become a source of political debate. Well, Amy, it would be great to think, oh, this is the first time people have fought about counting votes, you know, but I'm definitely old enough to you know, have sat through Bush v. Gore. And of course, we've had these controversies for, you know, 120 years, minimally. You know, we, we turned to a different balloting system in the late 1800s, about 1888, going forward, which was sort of office block, meaning you voted not for your party, per se, but you voted uh, for individual offices and candidates. And ever since then, we've had a, a much more complicated voting apparatus. So we've been challenging votes forever, you know, and I think that's I think that's the interesting part. People are so glued in, so sorry, not glued in, tuned in that they're now I know what a provisional ballot is. Like I knew what right. it was before, but I didn't know quite right. Right? You're going to have people talking at Thanksgiving about provisional ballots in America. You know, that's not a bad thing. Does this point to the need for reform in how the electoral process is done in this country? 
Yes, <laughs> I think Nathan. I think I think. <laughs> listen, answer, you, know, yeah. you know, sticking with this idea that you're going to have two million absentee ballots coming in on election day, and you don't let people count them when they come in. That's what the Pennsylvania state legislature did. They said you can't start counting till election night. Clearly, now we're looking at Pennsylvania. That is not good public policy for anybody, for Trump supporters or for Biden supporters. So there are some decisions that were made, I think, to, to process the enormous mail-in ballots. But I think the good news is that people will have more ways of voting going forward. I do think. That they're going to insist on having a lot of these options, and hopefully that means more turnout, greater numbers of turnout in the future. What does this mean looking ahead at, for the Electoral College? How will the Electoral College handle uh, all of this? What does it mean for the future of the Electoral College? There are those who have been calling for it to be banned. So the Electoral College, this is two, two things I'll try to get in. One is state legislatures can turn it from lunar-take-all to proportional representation. That's all you need. You don't need to change the Constitution. You just change the way you allocate your Electoral College delegates the way that Maine and Nebraska have done. Every state can do that, and it would be more fair. Would it change the outcome in the end? We don't know, but it would be more fair. And that is something people can agitate at the local level for, for the, their state legislature. So that's something you can do on the ground going forward. The second thing is I am a little nervous about the Electoral College if this turns out to be super narrow. You know, faithless electors, a Supreme Court case this summer, said basically you can't really do that. States can sort of punish you, pull you back, whatever. But it's still nerve-wracking if it's super close that some people who go to the Electoral College um, can defect from the popular vote in their state. Supreme Court decision is pretty clear that they believe the intent is that you should follow popular vote in your state, whether it's legally bound or not. But still, it's nerve-wracking. I think a lot of people are a little nervous that we've got to get to that point to, to know that this election result, uh, whichever way it goes, will be you know, solidified and cemented. Yeah, and it's really interesting, uh, even as we uh, continue to watch the votes being counted, President Trump is once again uh, tweeting this morning. He uh, sent out three tweets uh, talking about tens of thousands of illegally received votes uh, after 8 p.m. Tuesday, Election Day. He says totally and easily changing the results in Pennsylvania and certain other razor-thin states. It goes on from there, but the uh, rhetorical strategy that we're seeing from the president as this count goes on of uh, separating legal from illegal votes as he sees them uh, is going to be something to continue to watch very closely. Wendy Schiller, chair of the political science department at Brown University, thank you for your insights this morning uh, as we continue to watch the count roll in. I'm Nathan Hager along with Amy Morrison, and this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The path to the White House is there for Joe Biden, but how much power will he have with a divided Congress? Now we want to bring in Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television. Kevin, a good morning to you. We good have been hi. We've been listening to two very different messages from the candidates. Joe Biden talking about unity, asking for people to be patient and, and stick by him. President Trump, meanwhile, demanding the count be stopped. How are those messages resonating? Well, look, I think in terms of what we saw last night from uh, former Vice President Joe Biden when he spoke in Wilmington, Delaware, quite frankly, he wanted it to be a declaratory victorious speech, but he wasn't able to get that because the state has not been called that would get him to that magic 270 threshold, the count as it stands now in the Electoral College, Amy, 264 to 214 uh, with Biden leading. Meanwhile, 
uh, they're still optimistic. They're still urging, urging patience. And, and he said something yesterday, though, that I think many of the sources that I was talking to throughout the day yesterday wanted to hear, which was that they are taking the legal threat still seriously enough to make sure that they're prepared for it. And he had a line in his speech where he said that he would make sure that every vote was counted. Meanwhile, President Trump also continuing to work with his inner circle, Jared Kushner, Rudy Giuliani, in order to pursue legal actions. And they have been deployed, uh, some of them, uh, throughout the country to some of these battleground states. So the uh, Biden team is exuding patience. The Trump team is uh, indicating that it is willing to uh, take this fight uh, through every legal channel. If there is that sort of trepidation from House Republicans, does that put pressure on the Trump side uh, to perhaps not go as far as they have expressed rhetorically that they're willing to go legally, Kevin. I think that's a really smart point, Nathan, what you just said about rhetorical uh, arguments uh, and media arguments versus the actual nuts and bolts on the grounds in some of these battleground states. Um, It's been difficult, I think, for everyone in the media to cover the legal elements of this because we haven't really seen a cohesive legal message nor strategy that could change this is a very quickly evolving strategy uh, but uh, that that frustration based upon my reporting even when I talk to members of Congress and uh, who are Republicans they're feeling that as well um, and so the the law it's a long way of saying that I'm not sure the president's legal team with the addition of David Bossie who they've brought on Jared Kushner has brought on I'm not sure they yet, as of now, uh, have clearly articulated nor rallied the Republican leadership and thought leaders at this point behind them to get them all on the same page. They don't, they're not speaking from the same playbook today. Now, Kevin, there are some Biden supporters who want to see Biden go ahead and just act like a president-elect. You know, President Trump came out early Wednesday morning and said he won. So they're looking at Biden as someone who can stand up and say he won. why They're asking why Biden doesn't just go ahead and claim that. Well, and Speaker Pelosi also uh, mentioned uh, him as president-elect Biden as well. So this is, a, I mean, Amy, it's, it's just remarkable to see uh, the, the both sides in, in terms of declaring victory. And I can tell you, based upon my own reporting, that there was some internal uh, deliberations on the Trump side about how far he should have gone. Some wanted him to go further uh, on that speech uh, on election night in the early morning hours after. Um, and and the short answer is, well, some would some of my sources tell me that well Biden already is doing that. Uh, he and uh, it was reported yesterday that uh, Gary Gensler will be his Wall Street uh, oversight advisor. Um, uh, Based upon my reporting sources, you know, continue to tell me that that Biden is being briefed uh, on COVID-19, uh, that he is being briefed on the economy, on yesterday's unemployment numbers at 6.9 percent. And you, you you heard him make mention of that. And so in practice, yes. In, re- in rhetoric, not yet. Meaning we, the, the declaratory statements. That's not an assessment of his tone. <laughs> right. Now, always uh, lame duck sessions are tough. It's tough to get anything done in a late talk (laughs) session. When you have this kind of protracted count going on, legal maneuvering, and the the need for a a stimulus or some sort of response uh, to this 
resurging coronavirus pandemic. I mean, there are a lot of factors uh, coming in here uh, that could make it very difficult to get something done in a lame duck, Kevin. You know, but here's here's the variable that I don't think we've we've, we've talked in, enough about, and that's the uptick in COVID nineteen cases, right? right? Because you're seeing the uptick really have to implement the policy uh, in Europe, whether it's the UK, France, Germany, and those governments, mind you, ideologically diverse in terms of politics. Uh, so here in the United States, we have been so focused on the election that I don't think, uh, and maybe we're a couple of weeks out from this, I don't think that we've fu- fully had a reconciliation of the uptick in cases, hundred thousand plus cases in the United States, another day of 100,000 plus cases in the United States. And mind you, our Jennifer Jacobs scooping yesterday that Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff, uh, also contracting COVID-19 as well. So, you know, that I say all of that because COVID-19 really could place pressure on local governments around the country to uh, to add more restrictions. And as a result of that, that could force Congress to act in terms of fiscal negotiations. Secretary Mnuchin and Speaker Pelosi, mind you, both saying publicly uh, this week that they're still going to continue their deliberations. Kevin, let's build on a little bit of what Nathan just asked you about. Because what we're basically boiling this down to is the business of government and how it can continue while all of this limbo is ongoing. What would the path ahead be for White House policy, even while we are in this period of uncertainty? Does that have to freeze as well? No. I mean, the U.S. just took the Uyghur groups off the terror list yesterday. And, and so, and I, and I mentioned that because uh, the government is still very much going on. And I think that they're rightfully, uh, the American people are, are focused on uh, what's going on in terms of their elections. Uh, and Amy, you and I have, have talked about this before almost, you know, with millions and millions of Americans uh, voting um, and, you know, for the first time ever, such a dramatic increase in mail-in ballots, uh, it it's taking a couple of days, at least, uh, for this process to play out. But the process is playing out, whether it's down in Georgia, where there's going to be uh, a recount, uh, or in Nevada, uh, where we're anticipating over the next couple of hours additional reports on ballots from Clark County, where Nevada, of course, is located, uh, or in the judicial now. system, uh, where uh, the Trump uh, campaign is continuing to explore its legal options. There's multiple process, process, processes, Amy, at play, (laughs) (laughs) but they're playing out. Yeah, and when you have a pandemic going on, uh, we knew this was going to take some time. And with a resurgence of cases, it just reinforces the fact that this count needs to be done not only carefully, but safely. So it's going to take a while. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television. Thank you for getting us up to speed here. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Let's bring in Emily Wilkins now, Bloomberg government reporter. She is with the Biden campaign in Wilmington, Delaware. Good morning to you, Emily. I wanted to ask you about the Biden camp, which obviously has been holding its breath, ready to release the balloons and shoot the confetti cannon. They thought they might be able to do that last night. Didn't work out that way. So where are we now? So as we just heard, uh, Biden is up in four major states. Uh, If he wins Pennsylvania today, if that is called for him, 
That's it. Uh, Nevada and Arizona is another pathway to his victory. We're also looking at Georgia. We saw Biden address the nation last night, and his remarks were far more substantive than anything else we've heard since election night. They were also forward-looking. Biden began to talk about uniting the country, putting anger aside, bringing people together, and also began to talk about the response that his administration would have to coronavirus. He's still not declaring victory, but the speech we heard last night from Biden was the speech that we would expect from the next president of the United States. Would we expect Biden to make that speech definitively uh, once uh, a projection at or past 270 is reached? Or is he still going to uh, put in that note of caution, uh, given the uh, uh, seeming uh, unwillingness of the current president to um, end this fight? That's a great question. At this point, the Biden campaign has been taking the calls, um, the network calls and the AP calls for the states as they come. Uh, The AP and Fox News declared Arizona for him, and the Biden campaign has been counting that in their total, despite the fact that some of the other networks haven't called that state yet. But Biden does have to be cautious here. You know, his message to voters over the last several weeks has been that he cannot declare victory, that Trump cannot declare victory, that it's rather the networks, the the pollsters, the people counting who are the ones who will say definitively who is the next president. Emily, what measures is Biden taking now in order to hit the ground running when that presidential transition gets underway, assuming he maintains his lead, wins the court battles, and is officially declared the president-elect? So Biden has already started reaching out to individuals uh, to help with his transition team. Um, A couple that we've heard of the other day, uh, former Commodity Futures Trading Commissioner Chairman Gary Gensler and KeyBank NA Executive Don Graves are being tapped to oversee financial regulations under a Biden administration. Uh, So we've got a couple names there. Uh, We also know that Biden's reaching out to a number of other individuals trying to put together that transition team. You got to think there's a lot of jockeying going around behind the scenes as well for uh, high senior administration official positions, even in cabinet level positions. What are you hearing in terms of uh, who's trying to get Biden's ear right now? Well, I think an important thing to keep in mind here is what the Senate is going to look like. At this point, we don't know if we're headed for a Republican-controlled Senate. That's the most likely scenario. There is a potential that you have a 50-50 Senate, which gives Democrats the slightest of slight advantages. And look, in a Senate like that, uh, it might be a little bit hard to see uh, Treasury Secretary Elizabeth Warren or Labor Secretary Bernie Sanders, because there's going to be some concern that that those individuals need to remain in the Senate and need to remain solid Democratic votes. Uh, Biden's also probably going to have to put forward a number of cabinet nominees who are a little more moderate uh, rather than some progressive names that could face uh, a lot of uh, turbulence through their nomination process in the Senate. Emily, which states are the Biden campaign taking note of uh, at this hour? Pennsylvania may be an obvious one and Georgia may be the surprise, but uh, I'm wondering about Arizona and Nevada. Well, the Biden campaign is pretty confident in the AP and Fox's call of Arizona, but I think everyone is still watching that one very closely at that point. Um, Nevada is obviously the other one. But look, Pennsylvania has always been within the sights of of Team Biden. Biden spent so much time there. He started Election Day there. He was there the day before Election Day and the day before that. 
Pennsylvania has always been a really key state for Biden and sort of building back that blue wall of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania in the Midwest. And that's definitely one that his campaign, and I think the rest of us, too, are watching very, very closely today. And just 30 seconds here, Emily. Uh, psychologically, uh, Pennsylvania is important as well as his childhood home. Absolutely. When Biden visited Scranton, he visited his childhood home. This is on Election Day. He met with the people there, and I think he wrote on the wall some variation of from this house to the White House with the grace of God. All right. We're going to continue to see how it goes. It's Pennsylvania and a handful of other states still in flux on this Saturday morning. Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins with us from Delaware, where Biden campaign headquarters is located in the capital of Wilmington. Thank you, Emily, for joining us this morning. And straight ahead on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report, we're going to look ahead at the path ahead for policy with the potential for gridlock in Washington if it turns out that the blue wave doesn't fully materialize. I'm Nathan Hager, along with Amy Morris and Michael Barr. It's 839 on Wall Street, and this is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The path to the White House is there for Joe Biden, but how much power will he have with a divided Congress? We bring you Greg Giroux, our Bloomberg government reporter covering Congress, which, like the presidential race, remains somewhat in flux, particularly uh, in the in the Senate. Uh, there's still a pretty good chance, Greg, I think it's safe to say uh, that Republicans retain control of the Senate. But two key races in Georgia going to runoff. That's right. Um, so basically, the Senate is 48 to 48. The Republicans are leading in races in North Carolina and Alaska, which means those two runoffs in Georgia could determine whether Republicans keep their majority or if the Democrats can pull to a 50-50 tie, uh, which would allow them to organize the Senate uh, as a with a tie-breaking vote of a vice president, Kamala Harris, provided the Biden-Harris ticket wins and Democrats are able to unseat two Republican senators. That's the only way they can do it. It's going to be a tall order, so Republicans are more likely than not to have a very narrow majority when the new Congress convenes. You know, Greg, back in 2000, it was Florida, Florida, Florida. That was the pivotal <laughs> state. Um, break this down for us. This time, which state is more pivotal? Because it seems like Joe Biden has several paths. He does have several paths, and I think maybe the watchword this time is Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Or well, that's not easy to say Georgia. three times. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah, we could, we could be here all day if we said all the states that were so close three times. But Pennsylvania is one of them. 20 electoral votes, so that alone would get Joe Biden the presidency. Uh, so right now, Biden's up by about 29,000 votes in that state. There are about 89,000 mail-in ballots left to count as of this morning, plus so-called provisional ballots. Most of these mail-in ballots are in Philadelphia or in the county that has Pittsburgh, these are very Democratic counties, and Biden has been winning these votes with more than 70 percent of the vote uh, because uh, Biden had his, uh, wanted his supporters to vote early, and Trump had his uh, supporters uh, want to vote on Election Day. So these votes have been trending very Democratic. I would expect Biden's lead in Pennsylvania to increase. There was so much betting ahead of the election, Greg, of, on a blue wave in the markets uh, that we would see a Democratic takeover decisively. And obviously, we didn't get that this time around. Uh, it looks like the House will hold on to its majority, though not as uh, 
as deep as it was in the uh, current Congress. What could that mean potentially uh, for how leadership is made up in the House? Well, I think yeah, it's hard to say um, how it's going to affect the leadership structure. It could be the same Democratic leadership. I mean, you do have some leaders who one of the leaders, uh, Ben Ray Lujan, a top ranking uh, House Democrat, did get elected to the Senate. So there'll be a shuffle in the leadership down there. But at the top of the leadership structure is Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And she said she'd want to be Speaker for one more term. I presume she would have the votes to do it, although there is some uh, you know, frustration within Democratic ranks because they underperformed in this election. They're going to lose seats when they fully expected and predicted publicly multiple times that they would gain seats. But they're going to have a reduced Democratic majority. How reduced that is uh, remains to be seen because we still have a lot of uncalled races. But it just makes uh, Pelosi's, it weakens the Pelosi's uh, negotiating power a little bit because she doesn't have as many votes at her disposal as she did before. But Democrats will still have a majority, but a narrow one. Does that then translate, Greg, into a mandate for those who are still holding on to their seats in the House? And does that then lead to not just gridlock, but maybe an opportunity? I try to be so sunshiny here. Maybe an opportunity (laughs) for cooperation. Yes, well, one would hope there'd be opportunities for cooperation, but it's really hard to see how that happens. You're going to have a you know, if Biden is elected president, that would be by, uh, I mean, he'll win by four or five million votes, but, you know, uh, you know by about two, you know, three or four percentage points. But in the Senate and the House, the Senate's going to be 50-50 or 51-49 Republican or 52-48 Republican. And in the Senate, to get a lot of things done, you often need 60 votes uh, to advance major legislation. In the House, as we mentioned, it's going to be a very narrow majority for Nancy Pelosi and her Democrats. So you have to wonder... What kind of big things can pass a Democratic-controlled House, a Senate that's probably going to be controlled by Republicans by a very narrow margin, and be signed into law by a President Biden if he does win, the, win this election? Uh, pandemic relief, I think, is one thing you're going to watch out for, but can they agree on big-ticket things like infrastructure? Uh, the two parties are still very, very uh, divided on some major policies on taxes and spending. And when you have a uh, Senate that is held by such tight margins, uh, no matter which party uh, ultimately gains the majority, Greg, it gives leverage to just about every senator, depending on whether they want to uh, try to pass something or hold up legislation, which often happens in the Senate. How could this potentially gum up the works uh, on the Senate side of the Capitol? Yeah, in a Senate that's going to be close to 50-50, it, it does kind of magnify the importance of maybe, you know, the few uh, senators remaining who are sort of in the middle of their respective political caucuses ideologically. Uh, you want to look at somebody like a Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who probably the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. Um, he'll, I mean, he and, he and Biden are friendly and they agree on a lot of things, but he's not uh, from the progressive wing of the party. So, um, so he, I mean, he could be an important dealmaker in the Senate. You know, on the Republican side, Senator Susan Collins uh, from Maine was reelected. Uh, perhaps, you know, perhaps in a surprise, she was trailing in most of the polls. Uh, she's one of the rare moderates in the Senate. She's also someone to watch, someone who's going to try and forge compromises with people like Joe Manchin on the other side of the aisle on things like pandemic relief. So those are senators to watch on a 50-50 Senate, because if just a couple of senators from one party join the other party, uh, they can, uh, you can get a majority that way and uh, advance legislation. So we'll have, to see, uh, we'll have to see what the final result of the Senate is uh, uh, to, to have an idea of what kind of uh, 
bipartisan opportunities there are in a, in a Senate that's going to be closely divided. We've been talking this morning about what job one might be for whomever does win the presidential race. But I want to ask you what job one might be for the House and Senate once the dust settles. And will it be the same job one? Well, the first things they're going to do is they're going to organize their leadership. And uh, in the Senate, there's still some you know, suspense, at least, about who's going to be majority leader. It's most likely going to be Mitch McConnell. But if, uh, if the Biden-Harris ticket wins and the Democrats win those Georgia seats, you will have a 50-50 Senate with a Vice President Harris as a tiebreaker. So that could allow Chuck Schumer to become the majority leader. But I do, I do think the Republicans are more favored than not to uh, hold their Senate majority. But job one, I think, is the pandemic relief. Um, you know, the, the latest tranche of aid ran out months ago, and the two sides, the two parties, could not agree on a, on a uh, relief package, a, a next uh, uh, relief package uh, before the election. And, you know, we've all been so heavily focused on this election, we, maybe we lose sight sometimes of the fact that, you know, we had a record number of cases in the last couple of days, more than 125,000. So I think once the dust settles for the elections, I think we're going to come to the, we're going to come close to the hard realities of governing and realize that uh, we have to really tackle this pandemic. I think that's on the minds of lawmakers. Now, when it comes to longer-term domestic policy issues, uh, Greg Giroux, Bloomberg government, uh, you got to think that it's going to be difficult for uh, a President Biden, should it come to that, to to pass something that could be a really uh, big bore. Uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to, to pass something like a like a big tax package that could uh, fund things like infrastructure or a uh, some kind of overhaul to the health care system. Uh, what kind of domestic policy uh, proposals could actually get through in the months to come uh, under a divided government, working with potentially a Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think pandemic relief, I think they have to come to an agreement on that, um, just what the specifics are. Um, I think, yeah, we have to watch out for that. But I think it would include some aid to businesses and hospitals. They have disagreed on aid to state governments, but I think you will see uh, the two parties you know, finally come together after the election on a, a next tranche of aid for pandemic relief. You know, we've talked about infrastructure for many months. And yep. Maybe the two sides finally agree on that, but we always, people always joke about, is it going to be finally be infrastructure week? So you'd think that they could probably agree on that, although we have to, that remains to be seen. But you're right, though. Um, the Biden, if, if Joe Biden is elected president, he had a campaign platform that you know, is very aspirational, um, now it's going to come to the hard realities of governing, and you know, you're not going to be able to get uh, a public option added to Medicare or, or to the Affordable Care Act, or you're not going to be able to increase taxes on people making $400,000 a year or more, as Biden wants. You're not going to get that through uh, the, the Congress, as we expect it will be currently composed. Greg, what's on your agenda for today? What are you watching for in the next few hours on this Saturday? Well, the counts continue in the four states where uh, voting, uh, I mean, I should say the tallying continues that haven't been called. That's Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. Uh, we should get updates uh, later this morning from Arizona and Nevada. Uh, in Arizona, that's the state where the president has been gaining on Biden uh, in the tally, uh, but not at the rate that he needs to overtake Biden in Arizona. In Nevada, Biden is up by almost two percentage points. And with, um, if he clinches Nevada and Arizona, the race is over because he'll have 270 electoral votes. But as you mentioned earlier, Amy, Biden has several passes the presidency. He is also leading in Georgia and Pennsylvania. Right. And if he wins all four states, 
Biden will have 306 electoral votes, well above the 270 needed to win. Greg Giroux of Bloomberg Government, thank you for joining us on this very busy Saturday morning. Stay tuned for another hour of complete coverage of the 2020 election and the future of White House policy. I'm Nathan Hager with Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. We think there's going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence, so much proof. I ask everyone to stay calm. The process is working. It's going to end up perhaps at the highest court in the land. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The vote's still being counted. Legal challenges remain, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. And coming up over the next hour, we'll examine the vote and the legal battle, as well as the path ahead for White House policy. Not only that, but how the next steps could play out in the days and weeks leading up to December's Electoral College vote. All straight ahead. For now, we bring in Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy. We should note uh, Terry pushed back against the uh, blue wave expectations that much of the market was looking for prior to Election Day. Terry, it does look as though we are going to have a divided government once all the dust settles. What is that going to mean uh, for the mandate that Joe Biden is trying to uh, put out there for things like uh, climate policy, uh, dealing with the economic setback, uh, dealing with the coronavirus? Well, I think uh, that Vice President Biden is following in a long political tradition of trying to put the best face and, uh, and the most emphasis uh, on, on exactly what he's, what he's got out of this election. Uh, but the fact is, there's no mandate for either side. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this is about as closely divided an election as possible. Uh, and he's going to have to work with a Congress that is still very likely uh, marginally Republican, but uh, marginally Republican in the Senate, and even more marginally Democratic in the House. Uh, what that means in practice is that you don't really have coherent or cohesive party structures. Uh, you're going to have a bunch of shifting coalitions that probably deal well with the fiscal things that need to happen. Probably you'll end up with a uh, another stimulus in the 1.5 trillion to 2 trillion range, and you will continue to have the parties agreeing on funding government pretty much in the uh, the realm that they've been doing for the last decade. But uh, beyond that, I wouldn't look for a lot of policy changes. Uh, you mentioned the smaller margin of the Democratic majority in the House, and now House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's leadership there is being questioned. How does that factor into your outlook? Uh, well, I I. I I thought all along that the uh, that the House was going to be less less Democratic than it was. It was already a tiny majority of around 17 seats, and it stood to reason that uh, the, the there would be a lot of pressure on the centrists that had won in 2018 in Trump districts. Uh, I think what's going to end up happening is that it, I think there's an important part here with Pelosi that, that most people miss, which is that the deal that she made when she became Speaker again t- uh, last year was that she would only serve two more terms. So going into this, she'll be in her last term, assuming she survives it, which I think she probably does. She'll probably continue to be Speaker. Uh, but, it, but, but no longer will the loyalty be there among Democrats, uh, and no longer will the ability of Speaker Pelosi be there to uh, to 
to to uh, bring these people into line and have them vote on a uh, on a unified basis as they did on contentious things like say for impeachment for example uh that won't be there uh so you're going to see less discipline in the democrats and you're going to see more jockeying uh paradoxically that might uh, the, that might lead to more coalition building and more solutions uh people start re- reaching across the aisle a little bit more which would be a good thing for the country Will President Biden be able to work that way? Obviously, he's got decades of legislative experience in the Senate, particularly. How much pressure can he put on the House uh, to uh, to enact uh, the, the kinds of policy agenda items that he campaigned on? Uh, I think almost none in, in reality. What you have is, uh, you know, the Biden, Biden has two problems, and you, I, I will get to your question because yours is the second one, and it's important. Uh, the first problem, problem is that uh, he's, he's going to have to negotiate with a Republican-majority Senate just to even put uh, cabinet officials and senior regulators in place. Uh, there's about, I think, 4,000 positions that are political positions in the United States government. The top that are required to be confirmed by the senator are about uh, 1,000 to 1,500, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, unless the Republican Senate uh, agrees with uh, Biden on who should be in there, he doesn't get nominees. So he's already going to have to trim his sails and uh, push back against the progressives in his own party, uh, which uh, which have had two conflicting things going on. The first thing is uh, they haven't been enthusiastic about the Biden-Harris ticket. And the second thing is now that it looks like Biden's going to win, uh, they're starting to demand things. Uh, and demand things which, of course, they can't get in this divided government. Now to the House, and much more shortly, uh, you have still, although you still have some of those uh, centrists in place, the vast majority of the House is the uh, progressives and uh, on the Democratic side, and those progressives are people who uh, don't want any part of a moderate agenda and will push back strongly against it. So I think uh, Biden has almost no ability to extract discipline from his own party. Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy, always giving us a clarity when it comes to the policy path forward, uh, something that's uh, sorely needed as we uh, continue to navigate a uh, vote count that is uh, still not entirely clear, although the, uh, the focus is uh, coming in a little bit more as we head through this weekend. Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy, again, thank you for being with us this morning. I'm Nathan Hager, along with Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The vote's still being counted. Legal challenges remain, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. I want to bring in Kevin Cirilli now, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television, and Jeannie Zeno, Bloomberg News contributor and political science professor at Iona College. And uh, Kevin, let's just start with you. President Trump on Twitter claiming voter fraud. Twitter's already flagged at least one of the president's tweets about legal observers being refused admittance to those rooms where the votes are being counted. What does all of this do beyond just creating some confusion and delay? Well, two things. I think that analytically speaking, uh, first and foremost, it it, it once again raises the issue about uh, big tech organizations and the 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 influence and the clout that they have in the national and global 
conversation. And it's a conversation that, quite frankly, policymakers here uh, in Washington, D.C. have been having for quite some time. You know, and, and we just saw the other week where big tech CEOs like Jack Dorsey were testifying virtually on Capitol Hill. And, and quite frankly, I think that conversation is going to continue. Secondly, in the more immediate uh, news developments, uh, based upon my reporting, what I can tell you is that uh, the president will be meeting uh, throughout the weekend with his legal team, some of which he has deployed in battleground states like Georgia, Nevada, as well as Pennsylvania. The question becomes for President Trump, and this is a question not being asked by the media, but by members of Congress within the president's own party, is what is the strategy in the short term and in the long term? And that is a a question, quite frankly, that they are still trying to sort through. We can talk about all of the different ins and outs of the legalities, and I know Jeannie Zeno, who has been all over this and the nuance of this, but at the end of the day, it has to come down to a simple message uh, and Republicans are still asking for that message to be more clearly articulated. You've seen some tweaks of it, Amy, in which they're saying they want to have all of the legal votes counted, and that's what they're uh, continuing to, to intensify with. Uh, but we don't have one singular court case, for example, that has made this easily digestible. Well, let's bring in Jeannie Zeno of Iona College, because the president, uh, as he has once again done this morning, uh, Professor, can say that there are legal votes versus illegal votes, but it does come down to what the election officials themselves are finding and counting as this uh, tally continues. Do we see any evidence at this point that there are actually illegal votes being counted right now? At this point, we do not, I mean, the reality is we simply do not have evidence of voter fraud or this kind of um, malfeasance that the president has been talking about at the polls or with the count. That's not to say we won't find evidence of it or that they won't produce that in the future in court. But again, at this point, it's just we don't have it. And, you know, look at what the Wall Street Journal editorial board is saying. Look at what Kevin was just mentioning. Members of the president's own party in the Senate are saying. You have to have an argument to make in court. It's one thing on Twitter and, in, and Facebook and elsewhere to proclaim that there are these problems at the polls, to proclaim there's widespread fraud. It's another thing to prove it in court. And as of this moment, as we've all seen, the courts have been unwilling and you know, just not accepting any of the arguments, at least at this point, and it's still early, that have been made. And so the president remains sort of screaming in the wind at this point without evidence to back up. And I, you know, I'm so curious to hear, as Kevin says, they're going to be meeting with their legal team over the weekend, what they come up with in terms of a legal strategy, because that is where their focus needs to be. You know, George W. Bush in 2000 had a legal team behind him. They were making a solid case, whether you agree with it or not, that the courts were willing to listen to. We haven't heard yet what that that might potentially be from the president and his team. I would like to follow up on that, if I could, Jeannie, with uh, just going back to 2016, because none of this is really that big of a surprise. Remember in 2016, President Trump then, when he was still candidate, Trump said he would accept the results of the election if he wins. He was very clear on that point. Same thing this time, and he's already said he'd be taking this fight as far as he can legally. But what we're seeing now is a split in the Republican Party over whether to fight this and how far to take this fight. What could this possibly mean for the GOP down the line? 
It's a great question because, you know, we just think about it at the, at the state level in Pennsylvania. The president has indicated that there are problems at the polls. He doesn't trust the count coming out of certain aspects, certain counties, particularly Democratic counties in Pennsylvania. Yet on the down ballot, you have important races cited for Republicans in that state. Well, how do you square those two things? The Republican Party is bigger than Donald Trump. Of course, he's the leader of the party as president of the United States. But to your point, his arguments have an impact on down ballot. And Republicans didn't do so badly down ballot. Looks like, and again, you were just talking two specials in Georgia, looks like they will probably hold the Senate. They they picked up seats in the House, you know, really unexpected. We thought Democrats would gain. They got at least six seats, if not more, in the House. And they did well at the state and local level in certain states. So the president claiming fraud has implications on all of those races. And Republicans are going to have to think really hard about how they go forward and make these arguments. Not to mention, unlike in 2000, we're talking multiple states where he may be contesting and asking for recounts. In some states, wanting votes counted. In some states, wanting the vote count stopped. That makes it that much more difficult for attorneys to go into court and make a solid case on behalf of the president. I'm watching the uh, headlines continue to cross this Saturday morning on the Bloomberg terminal. The Biden campaign is speaking to MSNBC this morning, saying they feel frustrated with the networks. They expect a race call today. Kevin Cirilli, what are you hearing in terms of where the margins are right now? Are we at a point where we can see more states called by the major networks today? Well, I mean, and this is a really fascinating conversation uh, uh, that is that is now emerging uh, publicly, which is how networks and news organizations call uh, a state for uh, a candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I go back, historically speaking, to 2000, when, quite frankly, uh, Americans learned maybe in real time about uh, the importance of that you could win a popular vote but lose an, an election. And I think this go-around in 2020, uh, Americans are learning about just how complex uh, mail-in voting and ballots and absentee ballots and, and the impact of counting and the data and the trends and the impact of all of this in real time, uh, how long it can take. Uh, that said, uh, based upon the conversations that I've had with uh Biden's campaign, as well as his political strategic orbit, uh, they are incredibly frustrated. And we still have to remind people that it doesn't come down to the network calls. It comes down to raw votes in each state. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Television, along with Jeannie Zeno, Bloomberg News contributor, political science professor at Iowa College. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. I'm Nathan Hager, along with Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. And this is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The votes are still being counted, but the path to the White House is there for Joe Biden. Let's bring in Josh Wingrove now, Bloomberg News White House correspondent. And Josh, it's right there in your title, White House correspondent. You're at the White House on a regular basis. I'm curious about a sense of optimism or hopeful determination, what the mood might be at the White House at this hour. Well, I think, it, I think they're in pretty dour moods, or at least more dour than they were a couple of days ago. You know, rewind to Thursday, the Trump campaign was, you know, doing call after call with the press, press conference after press conference, saying that they think the count would go their way, particularly in Arizona, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, that all sort of dried up yesterday uh, and has continued to dry up today. It looks 
like uh, uh, it's unclear what Trump's doing today. He could be golfing. We don't know yet. Uh, so, you know, the numbers are really ticking in one direction. There is no call at this point. The AP or none of the major networks have called it, but it feels like it's only a matter of time because every batch of ballots coming in in Pennsylvania just drives Biden's lead up higher. You know, Georgia is similar. They're pretty much almost done counting in Georgia. They've got overseas ballots, which is members of the military and other folks overseas, which doesn't actually skew necessarily as Trumpy as you would think it would. Um, but, you know, we're headed for a recount there. Basically, in the four crucial states, Biden leads in all of them. And uh, there aren't a lot of signs that there's a bunch of Trump votes waiting to be counted. One thing we do know, Josh, is that the president has been tweeting this morning, uh, claiming a lack of transparency, talking again about illegally cast votes. Uh, beyond rhetoric, is there any more uh, in terms of strategy for how the president plans to pursue this fight over the ongoing vote count? Not, not really. Um, you know, they've been filing suits in particular in those four states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. Um, the pushback yesterday was weird watching Fox News yesterday. I watched Fox for a living, essentially, you know, right. And uh, <laughs> the tone changed a little bit. There was pushback from Republican allies of the president saying, you know, essentially put up or shut up. Like, where is the proof? You know, the campaign has not provided proof of widespread fraud. In fact, the, the only one case that they brought forward is a case of a woman in Nevada who says that she went to vote in person and was told that her mail ballot had already been cast. Uh, and uh, the, the Clark County Registrar said that they looked at the mail ballot and that their view that it's her signature. In other words, they're accusing her of trying to vote twice. So the, Trump, the, only, the only evidence that has been brought forward so far by the Trump campaign is uh, a woman who the, car, who the county registrar basically says attempted to vote twice. So that's 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 all they've got so far. So ever there's the one yeah. waiting there, you know, you know right. we're, we're waiting for evidence. There isn't any yet. Well, well, Josh, I think the judges have also said uh, publicly that they they too are waiting for evidence. They want to see more evidence before they continue to proceed with these court cases. I want to ask you though to pull the curtain back a little bit. Who is in the president's ear to advise him, to tell him how to either concede gracefully or take the fight to the courts? Who will the president well, listen to at this point? His circle is essentially what it always has been. First of all, it's his family. Um, and what the signs we're seeing from the family are mixed. Donald Trump Jr. has been you know, publicly urging Trump allies to go on offense, you know, hold press conferences, raise pressure. To what end? I'm not sure, but essentially get out there and fight. Um, Ivanka Trump, on the other hand, has been pretty quiet. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it, it's not really clear what his kids would be telling him. And then outside of that, you get into like the Mike Pence world. Mike Pence has been pretty low profile since this all happened. Um, uh, loyal foot soldier for the president. Um, so I think I think it's sort of that inner circle. But then, of course, you mentioned um, uh, Mark Meadows has a COVID case. Um, a little... We missed a couple of zeros on that total. It's not 1,200. It's 120,000 cases that we've had in the U.S. yesterday and the day before. Um, so, you know, we've got a resurgent pandemic right now that seems to have hit Trump world pretty uh, uh, again. And they've got sort of the chief of staff, the Trump campaign's battleground director, and now one of its most loyal congressmen, uh, Matt Gates, reportedly also uh, having COVID. 
And uh, kudos to the Bloomberg White House team for uncovering that scoop that White House uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and some ev- several other people in the Trump orbit have uh, come down with COVID-19. In our last 30 seconds here, Josh, what does that do in terms of the disarray that we're seeing uh, from the Trump side as this account goes on? I mean, I, Trump released a statement yesterday that was combative, but you could read it as the, the start of a climb down. If the numbers keep going the way they have been going, then it will, you know, we, we can't, we're going to get a call sooner or later. I thought it would be yesterday. I was wrong. You know, but if, if Pennsylvania, for instance, is called today, I'm sure we'll see last gasps of legal fights, but mm. this feels like it's marching in one direction. Oh, we're certainly seeing a lot of care being taken by the networks uh, with these margins uh, as the count goes on. Josh Wingrove, Bloomberg News White House correspondent. So great having you on with us this morning on this special uh, report from Bloomberg Daybreak on the ongoing election fight. Coming up, the legal battle for the White House. How these lawsuits could play out as President Trump has said he's willing to take them to the Supreme Court. I'm Nathan Hager, along with Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. This is special coverage of the 2020 election from Bloomberg Radio. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It is 945 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Amy Morris. The path to the White House is there for Joe Biden, but a protracted legal battle could be in the offing. We bring in June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law, our resident legal expert, as we watch breaking developments across the Bloomberg terminal this morning, June. Uh, as Michael alluded to, President Trump announced his legal team will be holding a news conference in Philadelphia. Uh, he now says it will be at the uh, Four Seasons at 1130 this morning on the East Coast. Uh, to deal with what he calls the Four Seasons uh, landscaping. Not quite sure what that means, whether that's some kind of uh, uh, term that he's trying to uh, put out uh, in terms of what's happening with the vote. What will you be watching for uh, in the Pennsylvania legal fight? Well, I'll be watching for some actual allegations of voter fraud. So... President Trump has been saying that there's voter fraud, and that's what a lot of the uh, the Trump surrogates have been saying as well in lawsuits. But the lawsuits have been getting dismissed time after time. Every time I look and check, there's another judge who has dismissed another lawsuit because they make the allegations, but they don't have the evidence to back it up. So, for example, just yesterday in Nevada, there was an allegation that they shouldn't be using the signature matching machines. They should be checking them by hand because the signature matching machines don't do a a good enough job. Well, the judge said there was absolutely no evidence that there was no proof whatsoever, even though there were some there were some um, some papers that were filed and some and a lawyer attributed to it. But, you know, no real evidence. And that keeps happening time and time again, that the judges are just dismissing these lawsuits without any evidence. So I can't imagine what the legal team is going to be alleging in, in Pennsylvania today. Well, June, you and I have talked about this before. And, you know, confusion and distraction can be a strategy, if not a de- just a delaying tactic. If you were the president's attorney, how would you advise him at this point? Does he have a path to the presidency through the courts, assuming there may be some evidence somewhere? 
even if there's evidence, it has to be in a state that's pivotal. It has to be enough concerning enough votes that will make a difference in that pivotal state. And even, you know, in Pennsylvania, everyone is really focused on Pennsylvania because the president has to win Pennsylvania. And there have been a lot of cases filed in that in that uh state. However, none of the cases have really come through for the president except for one that allowed his election observers to be a little bit closer to watching the process. So, I mean, that's the critical thing. And even in Pennsylvania, where they're trying to focus on the number of ballots that were counted after Election Day, received after Election Day, that's what's up at the Supreme Court. From what I have been told, those are just ballots in the thousands, not in, even in the tens of thousands. So where will they get the numbers to turn any of these states? So far, none of these lawsuits that I've seen concerns itself with anything more than perhaps 10,000 votes. So it doesn't seem to me like there is a path through the lawsuits unless they come up with some new theory that will attack the, the substantial number in the margin of victory in one of these states to make a difference. So I want to pass on a little more information about uh, this news conference that the uh, president says his legal team uh, will be holding later this morning in Philadelphia. And thanks to uh, Bob Bragg, our producer, for passing this along, that it's going to be held at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. That's a uh, that's a business in uh, Philadelphia where the uh, the news conference is going to be held as we wait for uh, much more information on what the uh, president's legal team uh, could be pursuing. But uh, June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law, given how the uh, cases have gone uh, for the president's team uh, since Election Day. Where do you see this going? What do you make of the strategy that has been put out thus far? And does it point to where the uh, Trump team could take itself uh, as, as it tries to uh, pursue uh, further remedies for whatever it sees as going wrong with this vote? You know, a member of the U.S. Federal Election Commission said today on CNN that there's no evidence of voter fraud, there's no evidence of illegal votes being cast. And yet the Trump campaign, they are going to, as you said, have that uh, very, it will, it will be very interesting for all of us to hear what they're going to talk about and what kind of allegations they're going to come up with. They've also sent legal teams to Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So they're looking for, they're looking for fraud. They're looking for something to be able to sue on. But that's not an easy task. I mean, as I just said, you have to have evidence. And an interesting thing is, uh, looking at the lawyers so far, we're not seeing any of the heavy-hitting lawyers that you're used to seeing in these kinds of election battles. So, and um, I understand there was a reporting on CNN again that uh, President Trump was upset with the legal team that was put together by his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Because you don't hear those big names. You see, for example, Rudy Giuliani was, the last time they had a conference in Philly, was the, was the lawyer out front. He's not an attorney that deals with election law. Election law is so specific to each state. It's different from other law. Very specific to each state. And you have special litigators in those states that are usually used to deal with these issues because they're just so complex because the procedures, especially in 
in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, the procedures are really minute and they sometimes conflict with each other. And there's been no legal, there's, there's no, not been clear legal guidance in Pennsylvania about a lot of the vote counting procedures. June, I asked how you would um, how you would advise the president. Now I want to ask how, if you were one of Joe Biden's attorneys, because both sides have lawyered up, if you were advising the Biden campaign, would you just tell them to sit tight, keep your head down, and and keep the faith? What? How would you advise them? What is their role right now as the president continues to take all these different courses through the courts? Their role is defense. That's simple. It's been that way since these lawsuits over the count started. They come in and they debunk whatever the allegations are. You have a top lawyer in Mark Elias, and he was the one who, who uh, debunked the Nevada case, one of the Nevada cases that I talked about before, the signature matching machine, saying there's just no evidence here. That's what they do. They come in and they look at the allegations that the Trump campaign is making, and then they first say, where's the evidence here? Where's your proof? Which is what most of the judges have been saying in these cases in Michigan, that cases have been dismissed in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and the judges all say the same thing. There's no evidence for this. So it's easy to make these claims. Anyone can make these claims, but you've got to come up with evidence. And remember something else. It's really important that once the vote is cast, it's really difficult for a court to come in and say, no, we're not going to count that vote because the voter has reliance on the machinery, on the rules of the election. The voter has cast the vote. So even the Supreme Court will find it very difficult to say these votes that you've cast voters, that you relied on and you exercised your franchise, these votes won't count. That's different from what happened in Bush v. Gore. The Supreme Court there didn't say, oh, these votes are not going to count. They said you can't recount these. So I think it's a really big step for a court to take to discount any of the votes that have been cast. June Grosso, host of Bloomberg Law. Thank you for joining us on this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak on the election count. Stay with us throughout the weekend. And again, first thing Monday morning as we track the latest on the election, the legal battle and the path ahead for White House policy. I'm Nathan Hager with Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.